0: This is the Ben Ryan Podcast, part of the Sports Podcast Network. If you've listened to last week's episode, then you would have heard leading psychologist, Dr. Austin Swain, talk about coping with pressure, confidence, psychological safety, and a whole lot more. We continue that conversation and we jump a little bit more into the world of business and work life, from a leadership point of view, but also the different stars of leadership and new ways of working, communicating, and avoiding burnout. From stories of the battle between Coca-Cola and Pepsi, to bringing values to life, adapting to a new role, and the idea from one of the greatest ever TED Talks that every contact leaves a trace. We're going deep. I also bring some of this back to sport with recollections from my own career, but also remember the vehicles we use to tell these stories might be relevant to Austin or me, but like so much of our learning, we can use these ideas to morph them into our own worlds and thoughts. Whether we realize it or not, we all use a form of performance psychology in our everyday lives to varying degrees. It might be a simple moment of appreciation to someone you work with that lifts their esteem and reinforces positive behaviours. We start today's chat around the subject of feedback, giving it, receiving it, and its importance in any high-performing structure. We're working with an organisation that has this tool called Office Vibe,
1: um, where you can give people feedback. So you you might chair a meeting, and at the end of that conversation or that meeting you've chaired, there is the opportunity for the people who attended that meeting to give you, in real time, in that moment, feedback on how that, how that meeting went, you know. And so it almost like becomes a net promoter score for you. And, and I know that. So there is a, co- a company, um, a wonderful CEO called Komsal Bayezat, uh, Elsevier, former publishing company, they're now into data and research. And the ability to engage one's people, the ability to think about the culture for excellence that you create through how you treat people. yes she has a key performance metric for her direct reports, her board around their office vibe scores. Wow. So they are measured for their own yeah, compensation, yep. their remuneration, yep. their, you know, their whole progress. They are judged on
0: what they bring in, in a traditional performance sense, as much as their office vibe scores. Could you imagine that happening for, I don't know, Man United have, have a bad run of games and Oli Gunnar Solskjaer's gone and they're looking for a new manager and they're looking at the manager's CV and what they've achieved but they've hit this by the side of it is a list of managers and their net promoter scores based upon all the, their players they've ever coached and you can look at that as well Do you, Can yeah. you imagine yeah. that ever no,
1: totally. and I know I can and I mean if anyways that, that offers five examples. so we're working with a couple of organizations another wonderful um, sort of software capture of this it's called indigo metrics and so you identify what's our culture and of course you shape that you co-create that culture so there might be any number of criteria that is really, really important to our culture. If we're gonna win, this is how we're gonna win and this is how we demonstrate it, the day in, day out behaviors. And that they would be specific to the organization, but they've been co-created by people. Everyone buys into these things are important to us and then how you demonstrate them. So when, if it's the word trust, okay, well, how do we demonstrate? What, what, how does that, that show up? But then this Indigo Metrics tool, you, just dead simple on an app, on a weekly basis, you give all your colleagues data or, or, or feedback on the degree to which they've lived those values during the week, so you get a weekly report on okay those five, you know, so those five key behavioural criteria that we that we've agreed are important. I'm being kept honest by and if for example if it's dropped down, we then get a conversation about why. So I think there is increasingly I mean, elite perform elite sport is always I think being ahead of the curve on being feedback hungry because I remember doing, working briefly with um, a rower who actually did some stuff for lane four called. Uh, drew ginn he was part of the awesome foursome and he and i were having this conversation about the degree to which you get this balance routine i wouldn't call it positive and negative but motivational and developmental feedback yeah. what, is there a, a right ratio and we got into this interesting conversation about that ratio may well be indiv- individually specific some people might need a, a stronger positive to negative ratio vice versa. and he said the thing is austin he said um i'd like the ratio the other way i'd like much more developmental feedback he said because i know i'm good i've won two olympic gold
0: medals I just need help to win a third. I think elite sport is ahead of the curve in lots of, in lots of areas around performance. However, they, they are feedback hungry. But as far as the data, some of these um, examples that you're giving me from the business world, we haven't yet pushed those over. So yeah, no, that's... You go, I could think of half a dozen Premier League football clubs that I've gone into where they've had their values or beliefs on the wall in the training grounds or even in the home changing rooms and it's often the same things. It's, it's trust and loyalty and passion, you know, and then something that you had mentioned earlier, it's like, well, if you, and a a really easy example is respect. If that's down written in six foot letters in your, your training ground, then if someone turns up late, that actually links into that. But does that player understand that? And is it being measured? And they're the things that I think in elite sport when they talk about culture, they're the things for me that that I think we're not quite we've not quite got a handle on. No,
1: no, I agree. And so I think there's all sorts of things there. There's a lot in there, Ben. There's something about actual and and, uh, espoused. You know, the the gap between what we say is important as an organisation and then what the reality is. Do you think about culture? Culture can often happen at three levels: as the uh, the culture that's articulated. It might be our values. Then there's the culture that's experienced, sort of the day in, day out. And then there's also the deep hidden culture, which is like, what are the unwritten rules? Who are the real heroes? Um, uh, what are the jokes that get told? Um, and you know, so I, I've worked with an organisation recently where one of their beliefs or values, if you like, was belief in potential. But the joke was, in brackets, if you're good enough. So that yeah. that was the point. And, and you're right about – so – I um, uh, yes, an investment bank, for example, which did not survive the crash. They had in, in their beautiful offices uh, in Wall Street, uh, their values carved into some beautiful sandstone. And then one of the words was teamwork. And it was like three inches thick as you walked in. You walked down this marble hallway and there it was. You know, And of course, they routinely promoted people who were non-team players. So th- there's that's a really important matchup on that because I do values live and breathe. And I think the organizations that we work with, who do well and are outperforming is that they genuinely, those are front and centre. They're not just talked about. So that gap between actual and the spouse matches up. This piece around the values that are spoken about and articulated and whether they actually are delivered on a day-to-day basis is so important for leaders of organisations because all leaders get watched more than they know. We're all watched more than we know. And so everybody in a business will detect what leaders are excited about, and then what they're really excited about, and what they're interested in, and what they're really interested in, and also what's expendable when the heat's on. There will be those moments of leadership truth when these things are talked about. Do they hold up under pressure? So, for example, I'll share this. We're very glad to share this. So I think an organization that does this brilliantly is Green King. They are uh, an, an organisation that's rolling as best they can with the punches of yeah, hospitality I've spent, sector. I, I spent a few quid in, yeah, yeah. in the past at Green King. <laughs> um, but, you know, they have, they've they've re- reshaped their values and that the, what they've worked on really well across 38,000 people is they've had their leaders talk about what those values mean to them. So they've really worked hard on establishing them and connecting them to the organisation. But it's real good storytelling about why those values are important to them And giving almost like the organisation permission to call them out on when they're not being lived. So for example, each of these board members have owned certain values and have said, this is how it's going to get played out. You will see this. If you don't see this, then we're not living it and you have permission to call out. When someone does call it out, that's okay. It's not a career limiting move to call it out. And then all of a sudden you do that. oh yeah, they are serious
0: about this. Mm And we've got an organisation that walks its talk, so to speak. Yeah. It's funny how they, you will get those blind spots in organisations. So I remember at an NBA team I was at and they uh, showed me their changing room and said, like, this is our, our sacred place. You know, basketball players all over the world are desperate to get into this changing room and play on this court. And I looked around the changing room and there was empty bottles all over the place. Their playing kit was just strewn all over the floor. And I thought, well, there's a disconnect here. Because they're saying that, but then they're not treating it with the same respect that they think it deserves. Am I making, drawing a line that's unfair to then going, well, if they're thinking this, then therefore on the court, something else isn't quite connected. Where you took me on that is one of the principles that we try and bring into
1: all sorts of leadership development programs and getting leaders to reflect on their behaviours and quote the standards they walk past, sort of thing. And that's about every contact leaves a trace.
0: I don't know if that's a concept you're familiar uh, with. I'm there. familiar with it, but to, to, again, to our listeners.
1: Yeah, and it, for me, it's really powerful. And there's a chap called John Sutherland who has done a great TED Talk. He's a former borough commander in the Metropolitan Police. A good friend of mine. Superman. Yeah, yeah. Super, super, super and it was he who actually first introduced me to this, and he's actually become part and parcel, I think, of the way um, leaders should think, and he gets traction. Uh, so if it's okay, I'll talk through some of, of the Oh, yes, here. please, yeah. So yeah. there's the Locale Principle, which is a principle of forensic science. So the forensic scientists will say that um, if you look close enough, there'll be a clue left, which the forensic scientists will find. So if it's a break in through your, through, through your kitchen window, they will say that somewhere there may well be a trace of a footprint in a flower bed. There might be a trace of a snagged garment on the broken glass as they come through. There may be a trace of a fingerprint somewhere. So every contact leaves a trace. And... John talks about it at two levels, actually, which is interesting. I mean, the the leadership one I'll come to. But what he also talks about is, and it relates to pressure, and he talks about every contact leaves a trace, you've got to deal with pressure moments properly and not store it up. So he gives an example about, you know, every time, as a police officer, in his case, you go round to the home of the parents of a 16-year-old to tell them that their son has been stabbed to death that leaves a trace. You know, every time you either save someone or not, jump from jumping off Lambeth Bridge, that leaves a trace. And you think about all some of the experiences that he and others of colleagues face into. Now, if you don't deal with those, if you don't find a way to manage that stressful moment, that will leave a trace and those traces build up and then and he talks very openly about having an impact on his, you know, on his mental health, health. Yes. yeah. But then I think the big thing for leaders is every contact leaves a trace. So whatever it might be, do you want to leave a positive trace as opposed to in this conversation? We'll leave a trace between you and I. Do you want to leave it a positive trace or a negative trace? And so linking to your point about the dirty changing room, that in its own way is also a trace. It's not necessarily a behavioural trace, but there's a trace there. People will notice that and it will be logged. You know, And I think we talk I talk a lot about that with leaders because of. Yeah, the impact, that has, back to that point, leaders get watched more than they know, and they're very often unaware of some of the body language piece. And I'll, I'll actually share a, a rugby example in a moment, which I think, yeah, would be relevant to this. But it's about transitions as well. So, for example, I was working with a senior leader recently, and, and he was talking about the difficulty that he'd had as he transitioned transition into bigger roles. So he, this, he used to work for large global organisation. And he used to run the UK and he would find that if he ever found himself having an argument or perhaps leaving, so we say, a negative trace, because he worked in the UK and his, his team was running, he could find a way to patch it up. He could find a way to go and apologise. He'd find a way to make amends. And I wouldn't want to cast this guy out as some sort of uh, a leader you wouldn't want to work with, but on occasions that that would be the trace that he would leave. But then he got promoted and then started running uh, the European business and then got promoted and run the Asian business. And he said he always remembers this, every contact leaves a trace aspect, because if you're working in Asia and then you fall out with a guy in Japan and you're based in Singapore, then you can't just patch it up. So you've got to be thinking all the time, I'm being watched more than I know and am I leaving positive traces? Now that doesn't mean you then don't challenge people, but it's the nature of the challenge. You know, how do I challenge people in a way that they still feel good about it and feel
0: they can progress as opposed to just feeling they've just been torched or burned or whatever? And is that, would that link into kind of your self-awareness then as, a, as an individual and as a leader that what you do? So, I mean, in, again, in kind of more my world in the coaching aspect, you know, you don't want to be that coach that's high-fiving your star player when he scores a hat trick, and then ignoring him when you know he's he's not managed to get on the score sheet. That consistent behaviour because it leaves a like you said it will leave a trace to use use those those terms with that that player. And actually, one bad trace could completely destroy a relationship that you built up over years. Sometimes,
1: yeah, because I think often people reflect on the people who have influenced them and been great mentors and or leaders. People often talk about I actually can't remember what they did or how they what they said but I always remember how they made me feel so that's back to the every contact leaves a trace because that, that's to, to your point about you can undermine something very quickly in that way but so how, how do they make me how do they make me feel and one thing we haven't touched on I think just very quickly is sometimes team composition and different personalities and how there can be a ying and a yang and so I go there because one of my very first formative experiences to be with Lane 4 real eye-opener and I learned quick uh, because it was with Coca-Cola. Now, in 1997, they had the most recognisable trademark in the world, yeah. and we were working with the UK business and the European business in a leadership development program. But then something happened globally, which I think was really interesting. It had a knock-on effect, which I'll just share. Because at the time, Coke was a juggernaut and dominating in, in that sector, should we say? And actually, as I said, the most recognisable trademark. And they had a great combination at the the helm where they had an American-Italian guy called Roberto Gazzetta, uh, who was chief executive, charming man, a bane, brilliant relationship builder uh, with the bottlers, who who, the bottling organizations who distribute Coke, supremely uh, great relationship with all sorts of stakeholders, good outside face. And then his chief operating officer was a guy called Doug Everson, brilliant at his job, ruthless operator, who spent his whole life sort of um, trying to take Pepsi down? So he talked about um, he talked about them being the competitors or, or the imitators, yeah. and it was all about kill Pepsi and, and operationally minded. Right? So you had a great yin and yang there, uh, and so the, the team composition was was worked. And then uh, tragically, Gazetta died suddenly in office. He had a, a lung complaint, and he, he passed away. And so they hadn't necessarily thought enough as an organisation frankly about the the succession and so they appointed Everson as his replacement but then they didn't do a yin and yang and so Everson was like that kill Pepsi they're the imitators just drive it hard but then without any of that necessarily a bane, charming relationship management but they didn't compliment and so Cope then as an organisation, changed culturally and, and what was valued and what was regarded became sort of the Everson Mould. And he was brilliant in that role, but not necessarily in that role without someone to balance. And so what I do notice is that, and this is what we work on as performance psychologists, think about the team dynamic. What's the team chemistry? What's the personality profile? And do you have a balance of, I don't necessarily diversity of skills, but some complementary personalities in there? just thought I'd play that because I think the organisations that do that well have sustained excellence because they're thinking about that.
0: The things that I've thought that we would been interested to hear your view is ego and managing egos and dealing with your own ego. So either me managing with my boss's ego, which for a lot of listeners, that's going to be you know, a commonality will be either my ego gets in the way sometimes or my boss's ego certainly gets in the way or my husband's or my, you know, whoever it might be and any kind of tools or what how how would you go about either if your ego was getting in the way of you actually being your best version or if you were working alongside someone that was pretty crucial to your you, you being your best version how how you can help them without causing too much clashing whether it's possible to help them with their ego
1: one of the things that i think is really important for leaders to recognize especially as they progress through organization is that there will be a a transition clearly right and that's a psychological transition as well as into a new role and one of the things we talk about a lot is that as you move from being say an individual contributor when you start an organization to the first time that you are a line manager a first line leader to the next time you then become a second line leader in other words you're a leader of leaders there are different skills required where your identity has to shift in many ways and you have to think about the role that you're you're playing because it's that phrase but you know what got you there won't get you there and so we talk a lot with leaders about when you move up through an organization and you transition from one job to another use a sort of um, a luggage metaphor so what bags have you got to take with you what bags have you got to leave behind and what are the new bags that you've got to pick up because often what we see is that people get promoted into a role because they were good at the previous role. So they just keep doing those behaviours when actually what's required is something else. And they know that they feel good at those things. They're competent. They can demonstrate value. They can show people that they're important. And they're, but actually they've been promoted to try and bring other people through. And so there's an, almost an identity shift. It's not necessarily all about you and you demonstrating that you're the main person but actually how do you nurture talent and actually credit other people, give other people credit for the successes. And so the role becomes different. And I think there are a lot of very gifted people who actually don't make that transition that skillfully or they they make it too late and they don't realize that there are different bags to pick up Uh, or actually the bags, the bags they brought with them are now actually redundant in that role. And I do think that's really important because that's where a performance psychologist, for example, you really help people make that transition. So a lot of the work we do is that: how do you help people? You know, it's the first ninety days. What do you do that makes that transition smooth and elegant, as opposed to people starting to doubt that that promotion was the right one, and then that person then self-fulfilling starts to doubt their own capability and all of a sudden you've lost some talent so we do a lot of work on those transitions and one of the things is the ability to unlearn and it's back to my point about you know what are some of the protocols and behaviors so there's a there's the alvin toffler quote about the illiterate of the 21st century won't be those that can't read and write there'll be those that can't unlearn and i think that's really important so what do you have to unlearn that you hold sacred as a leader, and, and I don't mean like abandoning values. I don't think you, it's not about that, but it's about there may well be some principles and ways of working which did serve you well, which you just need to let go of. Yeah. So one of the things I think that, is, that connects to that, and we talk about adaptability a lot, and adaptability is about are you adaptable because you've got a learning mindset? That's why I talked about you know drive to learn and drive to transfer. Also your resilience. So it's okay having a learning mindset, but actually do you still have that learning appetite under pressure? And then the third bit is identity. You might have shifts in identity because you know, our identities will have shifted over time as, as we grow up because identity, the risk of jargon is socially constructed, <laughs> but our identity might need to shift. So a lot back to these transitions, you might have to abandon the fact that you're the sales guy because you're now a leader of the sales team and your identity is not about being the one that lands the big deal and gets all the pats on the back but you're the one who supports other people to win that deal. And that's why in lots of organisations we work with um, where there's real functional excellence, so it's engineering firms or lawyers or doctors, whose whole identity is about being the brilliant lawyer or the brilliant doctor. And yet you promote them into a leadership role and their identity is now around being a leader. It's not around being like being the brilliant lawyer who, who, who wins the big deal you know, again, But it's about how do you support people? And so your identity has to shift. So there's stuff that
0: stays true, but there's other things that you might need to moderate. Um, And so for someone that's making that ascent, or crikey, I mean, at the moment, it won't just be an ascent. It will be a pivot into something else. Great point. What would they try to then prioritise? There is understanding, I think, the stakeholder map. So...
1: Very often it's about they have to broaden horizons so they might have to broaden horizons from a time perspective um, and we, it, it's almost like a balanced scorecard so it's almost like what's the current and future so what do I need to deliver now but also what's my future horizon and also internal and external so it's about I think it's about understanding the stakeholder map and what's
0: important to them and when you mean stakeholder map you mean the the environment you're working in your the guys above you and around you and yeah and what actually your job and, is about.
1: Yeah, exactly, that. and externally. So it might be around, you also have a different role in about understanding what customers need or what regulators might need or uh, indeed, w- w- what's the take on competitors. So the horizon broadens, it widens because if you're going to add value to the organisation, it's like, oh, there's different, I need to understand other people's worlds
0: such that we can shape our own view. Yeah, and I, and I'm now bouncing around how sometimes you are your experience gets you to realize the bags that you've got that you, you stick with those bags, and that means you're the best deputy coach or assistant. Or maybe I've heard Pep Guardiola talk about this in the past, where he knows his his suitcases have a date. You know they're, they're, he's, he's four years his suitcases, and then actually either he's bored of those suitcases, wants new ones, <laughs> or the suitcases <laughs> don't fit anymore. So that so I can see how that can that can manage itself. Some of this will be wrapped around just your awareness that you need the tools. And other times, we talked about this is where your ego needs to needs to make you realize that there's, there's certain things that you can do and you can't do. And that other people sometimes are better than you at certain things.
1: Oh, I mean, I think in many ways, some of the best leaders are the ones who actually amass a lot of talent around them and integrate that talent well and actually just provide the conditions for that talent to flourish as opposed to them thinking they've got to demonstrate that they can do that job as well. And I think... There is what, is, and it's changing, Ben. In, in modern systems, there's a generational difference, I think, as well, because I think all the things that leaders have to face into now, there are multiple generational differences. I, you know, because I don't want to drop into a kind of snowflake perception. I don't want to be like a Piers Morgan talking about you know, different generations, but you know, the millennials have a different view. And I had a really interesting experience with one of our clients, fantastically uh, fantastic business, Primark, and. I was in a, a session, so we work at a, a board level, but also um, we were look, they were looking at their talent strategy. And I sat in on some focus groups and became clear that the prototype of what young people in their 20s and 30s are expecting of their leaders is changing. So they are expecting less command and control. They are expecting more empowerment. They're expecting more coaching behavior. They're expecting leaders to be really interested in them and their career pathway. In a way that wouldn't maybe have happened to a generation or generation previously. So I'm in this, I'm in this focus group, and there are some talented people there who were saying that they not in an entitled way, but they were expecting their boss's boss to know all about their career aspirations. So I was sat there going, that's really interesting, because I I can understand them expecting their boss to think about what their pathway is and have a really good development plan for them and be vested in them as a young talent. But for their boss's boss to be aware, and I think oh, that's interesting because it's no right or wrong, but that's an expectation of the organisation that I'm part of, and I want to be part of this organisation. I'm engaged, I'm connected to this business because I think that my boss's boss thinks I'm important. And actually, real quick, when I this is probably a sidebar. What I've noticed is there is a, and i tried this down actually because I've noticed it more and more, about social value, so that's the, com- you know, you don't know this, I mean, but there's there's something about, back to younger generations, they're really interested in working for businesses who are committing to change the world for the better and then going about it in a deliberate way. So, back, back to my transition, so, well, you're going to have to understand back to what the motivations what are. The, what, are we actually contributing to some sort of social responsibility? And actually, well, no, no, that, that, that takes us away from profit. No, no, it, there's a kind of win win in this. So, it's back to your point about ego. There has to be a softening or an abandoning of one's ego because you've got to have bandwidth
0: to think about how you're going to support lots of people, not just the five or six direct reports you might have. That example that you gave, I guess, in sporting terms, when you talk about some of the famous ex-managers, there's a great documentary called Three Kings at the moment with Matt Busby and Bill Shankly and Jock Steen, who's got a wonderful backstory, really, on you know coming from that small mining town in Scotland, but how that he knows, you know, they know everyone at the club. So and they know that you know does that I I know, remember John Fletcher the England under eighteen coach he had a little black book where he'd have a list of everybody and their birthdays and anything memorable and their you know their partners and their mums and dads and all those sort of things so that people feel valued now they didn't necessarily know what their career aspirations were but they did feel that value Is oh that totally kind of
1: no no because I, I think there's something about um this there's there's three things here Ben something about just listening. Because we can lif- listen at a surface level or we can listen such that the the person uh, receiving, if you like, the listening, feels that, oh, yeah, this person, there's accurate listening mm-hmm. or there's empathic listening. So where I go on this is that if someone perceives, oh, yeah, there is accurate listening, this person understands what I'm saying, I feel heard, they understand what I'm saying, but empathic listening is that they really get my reality. They really get my experience my lived experience and that therefore there's a rapport build and then we can connect now the reason why i go with that is that very often i think that empathic listening you pick up clues about what's really really important to that person holistically so it's not just about what's important to them vis-a-vis that task but you get to know them as of course people have different uh, privacy kind of boundaries and i think that's one of the things that covid has done i think it's humanized a lot of leadership because you see into people's houses lots You know, and and you understand. I mean, I've been on all sorts of Zoom calls where you've had parents in the middle of big meetings, and then their six-year-old son come up on screen at four o'clock and say, "What's for tea, mummy?" or "What's for tea, daddy?" You know. So what I'm saying is, there's a humanising of the stuff of of their whole hinterland, and I think that's a good thing. And so, for example, yesterday, much to my not so much shame as such, but uh, I found out something about uh, one of the people in my team about why something was really, really important to her. And I've known her for three years and I didn't know. I knew that this thing was important to her, but I didn't know why. And that's back to my point about listening. I'm sure there were clues, but I hadn't listened hard enough as to why that was really, really important to her. Now, I will now connect with her in a different way, in a better way, because I truly understand that where that's now coming from deep in her heart, as opposed to maybe just interacting transactionally on it.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's fascinating because I, I also, this is one of my priorities, I guess, as a coach to be a good listener. And I, I've i only really put it into the to two basic Um, ways of listening listen to answer a question and that is generally the the base of most people's listening skills and then listening to understand but you're also kind of taking that listening to understand another level as well beyond that where it's really that delving down into their behaviors beyond what you're hearing yes which is fascinating you know and i had to use that in fiji and yeah, it's crucial.
1: I, I bet, okay, of course. How do you think? How do you match quickly culturally? And clearly, you did that so well. But and and I think I'll give you I'll play out this example yesterday because it may be uh, it kind of makes the point. Hopefully, is that there's um, this woman at work who is really interested in uh, inclusion and diversity. And in fact, she joined Lane Four, having come from um, um, a diversity consultancy. But she left because she uh, wanted to almost like connect leadership development, make diversity and inclusion part of the leadership ag- agenda. And then yesterday, for the first time, she articulated to a client why. Now, it's because she's an elite rower and she was part of the programme in UK Sport where they went outside of the public sector traditional route. Yeah, Project Awesome. Maybe well Project yeah, Awesome. Yeah, right? and she's over six foot, and she went to a state school, and she had a whole stream of brilliant experiences because of the system went outside and outside the norm. In other words, they were much more inclusive of where the talent pool they could draw from, and so that's the first thing so for her, because she suddenly found herself, a whole world opened up that she had never had opened up. But then the second thing is that, and it says a little bit about her, but she also felt at first, she really struggled to feel she belonged because some of the conversations were about privilege and some of the, the, I guess, off the water conversation, she didn't feel she could contribute because her background was very different. And she always talks about the system was brilliant because it got her in the system, but the system could have been even better if it had found a way to help people value different backgrounds. So so my my point was that I only really knew that yesterday. I'd never asked her the question, so why is inclusion and diversity so important to you? I see it is. And I tell her often, oh, wow, you're awesome in that space. You're authoritative. You ooze confidence. You ooze credibility. So I give her all that reinforcement, but I've never actually properly asked her why do you have this passion? And so I think the leaders going forward, if they're going to really engage people, and to my point around being interested in talent pathways and what really really drives
0: people, you, the leaders have
1: to ask questions in a different
0: way. And would you call that, you, you know, finding someone's why, why they do what they do, and di- and digging and being prepared to yeah. put the time in and put the time in and really properly explore that? Because you know it's another it's a Nietzsche.
1: Uh, quote or cliche but I think it is so true that whole thing if the why is big enough we'll put up with any how and I think see that in all sorts of walks of life and you know leaders who have, have become stale and disengaged is because they've
0: lost sight of the why and I know that's commonplace but it is oh, so important. I mean I, I, I had that when my, my career with England in the last few months that I completely lost my why I was going in I remember going onto a training pitch to coach the England Sevens team and and I and I stepped on the pitch. Thought I hadn't even thought about what I'm doing. This was why I do what I do. To, you know, to, and it was my fight in fighting and with mm. the guys above mm. me around budgets and planning and all sorts of things. It took my off the ball. and I, I became a pretty bad version. But then the the flip side to that was someone like a Jerry Tuwai that I talk about in the book that was is, is World Sevens was been World Sevens Player of the Year. His why would often then drive a lot of other discussions we'd have because it's you know if somebody's finding things hard it might not they might be struggling in training because of something physical it might be linked to something else that is connected to their why and that just adds richness to your relationship with someone yeah totally so a, a lot point. of the uh, are a lot of these things intertwined a bit like a venn diagram yeah no, that's a good point
1: and, and you made a, a, a phrase obviously about five minutes ago about it's taking the time to invest in that and, and I think there is something about you know, high-performing teams, if I could just go there for a moment, is that there, is, there are various definitions around you know, complementary skills and common purpose and um, a shared ambition and so on, but also people are interested in each other's development. So they're actually really interested in each other and how they can bring the best out of each other. So there is something about investing time and emotion and energy because it will pay back. Now, I think sometimes there's a tipping point depends on how long a team is going to be together. So, you know, for a team that's preparing for, say, the 2016 Olympics, you know that we are going to be together in an intense environment. And maybe that's a subtle difference sometimes with business because teams come and go and ebbs and flows. But at an individual level, it's taking time
0: without trying to be uh, intrusive to really understand what makes someone tick. And that means that those informal... Chats so are just as important as the formal across the desk. There's almost like a two by two matrix where you talk about um, sort of formal
1: uh, and informal, and structured and unstructured communication. So formal, structured would be where something you, you are passing messages. You are end of year review.
0: Would that be? Oh no, it, it,
1: yeah, it could be. Yeah, no, it could be. It could be end of year review. It could just be a platform, a town hall moment where you are transmitting information. So that you are sharing messages. You are you know, conveying something that you think is important, but equally, you'll have those those moments where it is still fairly structured but relatively informal, might be like workshops where you're helping people understand and ask questions and what did you mean by that? And is there congruence between what you'd said in that platform moment and then how you interacted with questions? Because, mm-hmm. for example, if someone asks a different question, and you get a difficult question, you get defensive or you get flaky on the answer, then that, that in itself can sort of undermine trust. But the reason why I mention this is that the third one is like the informal conversations, those water cooler moments. So what do you choose to talk about in those? Does it congruent with what you've said in the other spaces I've just mentioned? And I think it's actually getting beyond small talk or actually remembering what's important to people and then reconnecting with that because it's about, oh, I am valued because that person's remembered something. And has taken the time to reconnect with me on it.
0: Some coaches might argue that Look, I don't really care what they, what, where they come from, what their background is, and who their wife is, or what their name of their of their of their pet is. I just want them to score fifteen goals a season, and I'm gonna chuck you know my training around it, and they got to get on with it. And there will be some coaches and some leaders that don't feel any of this is necessary. What would be your you'll come back to, the, to that type of leader or coach.
1: Yeah, where I go with that is something about the sustainability of what's possible over the duration of the season because I think you can only work on a fear or lack of a connection in the short term. And I think one of the best examples would be, for me, the research that David Young has done with county cricketers. So a brilliant bit of research across the course of a season where he looked at the head coaches or the director of performances sort of coaching style against outcomes. And essentially he found that, and you'd expect this, the most successful teams, the most successful coaches, balanced high challenge with high support. So high performance expectations, drove for excellence, but it was wrapped around a real sense of individualised support. And that individualised support was what was best for that person as a player, but also what was going on in their whole hinterland. And an awareness of that and an, an acceptance and an acknowledgement of that. And then what was really interesting was that they also found um, across the course of the season, if you had just a high-challenge, low-support profile, that was actually less successful than low-support, low-challenge, which actually points to the fact that they may as well have done nothing because low-support, low-challenge means that that's a pretty benign coaching. You're not actually adding a lot of value. You're actually not doing anything. Now, the point being is that that high-challenge, low-support across the course of the season created burnout
0: what would you suggest then do you think they can you can have those managers that perhaps not put the wall over people's eyes but have short-term success but just can't be sustainable because they don't actually put that support around it themselves they're not empathetic they don't find out more about the individual their why is that how you'd sum it up yes i would and i think that it's as ever
1: what can happen is that high challenge low support can work in a crisis It's what's required. In fact, sometimes that is maybe the style that works because people recognize that that's just we need to use every minute available to us to kind of meet the needs. But I firmly believe that that's not sustainable. And and the the whole, when you look at the burnout literature and the cues and clues to burnout, Mm -hmm. they're very often linked to that sort of style. Uh, now, there will be individual differences on some people will cope with that better, but I think they are in the mon- in the minority. So I think about burnout, very often there are probably three key signals to that. Now, the empathic coach, the high-challenge, high-support coach, detects that and intervenes and finds a way to make certain... The situation is such that that burnout then doesn't become a, a real, real long-term feature. So, for example, you know, for me, the, the, the burnout clues are... Uh, you might see a player or a, a leader, the jargon term would be depersonalization, as in, I don't care. Well, actually, they do care. They care passionately. That's part of the problem, right? But they just start saying, I don't care. Right. So there's a clue. Now, you can choose to interpret that in different ways, right? It's a coach. Uh, the second one would be there would be sort of emotional volatility. So all of a sudden, someone who's relatively calm suddenly flies off the handle. And that's a clue to burnout. So again, is, is a coach. Or a leader looking out for that everyone can maybe have a volatile moment but is there a pattern of up and down and then the third one is that a third sort of clue to, to burnout is that you start to question your own competence you actually question whether you are good enough and again i think an empathic coach spots that and has a conversation that stops that and then becoming something more ingrained.
0: That imposter syndrome, I guess, is one of those that I think we probably, well, I'm not maybe speaking for myself, but we've all had it in the past. I have certainly felt it where, yeah, I mean, that that resonates with me. I remember, I remember in my last year at Hong Kong Sevens and my boss was there and he had not come down to watch us warm up or train. He was just in the stand. So he's only cared about outcome, wasn't looking at anything else. And I was screaming and shouting on the sideline, which was very unlike me. And if somebody had from the outside been able to help me with that, I think they would have seen that as a burnout, a big burnout um, pointer. I mean, all of this stuff. It shows how much overlap and how much you have to be in the moment to be aware of this. I guess with all your hats on that you've done in the past, from from the academic to the the sport and to the and to the corporate, is there one? thing you've seen on the flip side that always is there is present in really successful safe environments what i do think and it links to change what i do
1: notice is that all organizations are in many ways having to reinvent themselves and there's always a transformation of some description just around the corner Um, i mean in many ways you you think about squads they're revolving. You know, the squad that starts the cycle is very not often the other squad that, that takes the field at the end, and so it's the same with businesses because there is just so much change coming. You know, the mega trends that are hitting leaders and businesses at the moment are coming thick and fast. Enormous mega trends in in in, in the world for leaders to navigate. Now, I think the ones that do that well are use. A marathon analogy, and because it's about dealing with change well and dealing with change skillfully, because I think if you're the architect of change, it's very empowering. But if you are not, if you're on, the, if you're the recipient of change, that can be quite stressful because there's that you know that phrase, you know, the misery, is the misery of the uncertainty versus the certainty of misery, and so on. But you know, I've worked with leaders who go, "I love change, can't, can't I?" I said, "Yeah, but that's because you're always the architect of it." <laughs> you know, um, so the reason why I go is that there's I'm going to use um, Marathon, the London Marathon analogy. So hopefully some people listening will, may have a, a feel for the London Marathon. So the organisations that get it right, if you imagine they are like the elite runners in the London Marathon. So you've got the start line and you're in Greenwich Park and there might be thirty to 40,000 people lined up behind going back towards Blackheath. You know, and the gun goes... And the elite runners take off. So whether that's, you know, the, the, the African runners or Kipchoge or Paula Ratcliffe or whoever it might be, they're off and running at sub five minute miling. And they're the leaders to so hold them as the leaders in this metaphor. So they're off. And then they might get to Sart, which is one of the first landmarks at, say, six miles, while some people still haven't crossed the start line because they're filtering through. So if you hold to the analogy, the leaders are already 6 miles down the line and the, the, these people are now starting the change because it's come down the track. And then if you extend the metaphor, the leaders would be going over Tower Bridge at halfway while some people are still just getting past Cutty Sark and for the, for the leaders who are going over Cutty Sark seems ages ago. And then of course you extend the metaphor, they're going to come down the mall finishing the race while some people are still back over Tower Bridge. Now my, my point being is that the organizations that don't create this sense of psychological safety or a culture that's aware and and, and empathic, is that they go, well, why aren't they getting it? Why aren't they as passionate about it as we are? Why aren't they? And it becomes their issue, becomes their problem, as opposed to the communication problem. So there's something about how do you circle back? How do you keep people informed? Because you've been having those thoughts and those conversations for months probably, and yet you, you can't expect people to suddenly adopt it because until they've experienced it themselves. So, and then for me, the metaphor extends is that they cross the line. Two hours later, they've probably dusted themselves down and they're thinking about the New York Marathon. They're thinking about the next change. They're thinking about the next, well, some people are still doing this. So you get some people are all going to do like, it's just change fatigue. It's like we sat on the San Andreas Fault and we don't know what's going on. Yeah. Now, the best organisations recognise that. And they don't necessarily slow down per se, but they find a way to keep people connected and informed. And so we use something around um, a little simpler, understand care can. So I understand the change. I understand why we're charging down the mountain. And I care about it. I found a way that I get it at a point where I, I care about this change and I know what I can do. Because very often people understand a reason for change they care about it because they care about the organization but they don't know what's asked of them they don't know what's required and so for leaders to spell that out and take time out and that's back to the the empathy and how well do we know the individuals and what will that stakeholder group really
0: need to stay connected to this if i broke down the can the care and the do yes to um having a a purpose shared purpose that you're and a belief and then that autonomy that you're actually part of all of that, and you're making a difference. Totally. I mean, one of so. I just a quick aside. I thought I loved so much in the book because what we talk
1: a little bit about is how leaders and in any sort of performance environment have to hold on to paradoxes. And so we talk about or we've done some you know, research around high performers and some of the paradoxes they naturally hold. So one of them, for example, is around um, being confidently humble. So it's important that you are confident in what you have to say. So there is, yeah, that creates presence. It prevents gravitas. It creates you know you you convey it with conviction. That doesn't mean there's something sort of hubris or narcissism, but you're just confident, right? But you're confidently humble, and that doesn't mean there's the humility that's in the kind of a Uriah heat way, but it's a humble in that you know you can still keep learning. And I think that's really because, you know, back to all the stuff from, a, I think, back to everything right from the start as a sports site like, through to a performance site like, now more, that there's that learning mindset. And I think there's a difference between a drive to learn and a drive to transfer. There's a subtle difference. Could you explain that? Well, it, it's okay thinking, oh, yeah, I'd really like to learn something. Um, I t- uh, almost like got a, an educational appetite, but then do I use it? Yeah, It's about okay. an application. Okay. So, for example, I've worked with a lot of leaders. If they get some 360 feedback, they go, yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, I'll take that on board. But then it doesn't actually convert into something useful. So, I think there's the a the difference have... between drive to learn and drive to transfer. And then the second paradox I wanted to mention is that there's, I think, a ruthlessly caring. And that's back to high challenge, high support in some ways. Because if you have high support, low challenge that's actually quite cosy and does it really push the edge and do you actually make progress? Do you face into some of the stuff that's coming? So ruthlessly caring is a really important paradox to hold because sometimes you have to make hard calls, but you do it in a way that is really respectful of the impact it's going to have. And if you don't mind my saying, I loved your story about when you chose not to select Rio. P.O.
0: P.O. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Because... I was totally with you on that in that scenario where you talked about I needed to give him a soft landing. So you talked about injury. So there's ruthlessly caring. You've made a ruthless decision, but you've tr- you've tracked it or coupled it with caring. And I think that's something that leads it's back to our empathy point, our ability to connect, our ability to think beyond just task. That's the point.
0: I'm yeah, to. I mean, I, th- I think so, some, of the, some of the times as a coach, if you're selecting someone and sometimes, you know, it, it might be for the under-14B team and when I was a comprehensive school teacher in in Southall in West London, or it might be not picking someone for Olympic Games, the impact on them personally could still be the same. They could still feel the same. And I've always thought that if you're telling someone if they're picked or they're not, that they shouldn't find it as a surprise if they've been in or they're out because you've supplied them with so much good feedback and information along the path that that's almost just another conversation about it. But then you also get those moments where somebody crosses what you've agreed, you know, and I talk about guardrails a lot, black and white, which I'm sure you must must be daily something. Yeah, some of the almost like the non-negotiables or the unimpeachables. Yeah, like so um, those black and whites that everybody's agreed that you need to work within. You know, so whether, I mean, and in some, some organisations, there'll be a safety element, you know, if you're working in a high-risk environment, there'll be some things that are non-negotiable. But then there's other things that you will agree as a group that then are owned by that group. And then if you don't have that black and white, then applied. So for for PO's example, if I thought, you know what, he's a world-class player, he's not going to do that again, let's just let, let that one pass. I've created grey and therefore fog in the organisation. And back to something you had said earlier in our conversation, they're the things that can trip you up, you know, because it's consistent behaviours, right?
1: Yeah, and it'll come back. There's a slippery slope. It always does, doesn't it? Yeah. And I did have one thing to say, actually, maybe as, as, as a sidebar around, a colleague of mine was working as a sports site with the England cricket team, and they did this subtle thing around... The difference between allowable and non-allowable weaknesses. Now that's interesting when you talk about black and white and grey but I think there is something in this because they talk about super strengths and then allowable and non-allowable weaknesses so the one that he always talks about you know with permission was you know Kevin Peterson um, and for me there's a link between not diluting a super strength because you're worried about an allowable weakness yeah, yeah. so in his case the super strength would be when he was on fire, he could change the course of a test match in an hour, right? play with complete freedom, don't feel shackled, just go be you in that unstoppable way you can be. Yeah. And what that meant was, is that if it meant being out I mean, the last over of play or the last over before tea, or maybe at a point where we just lost another wicket, don't worry about it, because that's an allowable weakness. Because if you contain yourself and confine yourself to almost play into the allowable weakness you're taking away from the super strength so there's that however there are non-allowable weaknesses which includes texting the opposition uh, about you know stuff around the captain in the squad and so there's something about this they're here with me this there's a oh there's I, a subtle I think
0: right? i think i guess experience mm-hmm. and um whether that experience is actually having those having that knowledge around your group that you've created those guardrails, or they're black and not right to the right width and height so that Kevin Peterson, in that example, can still do his thing inside of those guardrails, but that anything outside of that isn't going to, you know, isn't going to affect the, those things you talked about. He's still going to get his best version. But if he decides to do something that everybody has agreed is not allowed and is not going to add to the team, then the consequences he's yeah. going to have to face. It's, it's really, I mean, that that's perhaps another, even another conversation. And, and having spoken to other operators and practitioners in, in performance dealing with that superstar often actually shows whether the organization has got all of those things right and also whether the coaches has got the bandwidth to be able to cope with somebody that actually yeah. might know more than them
1: and the, the, it links to something else i think it's really important that i think sport is stronger at typically than in business i think business there can be more of a a sugar coating of tough messages and that's why this ruthlessly caring is something that we're you know, trying to encourage because I think very often people shy away from giving appropriate feedback and it, it's a, like a misplaced benevolence so you think you're being benevolent you're avoiding someone's feelings being hurt you're avoiding the potential damage to their self-confidence or whatever, but it's misplaced because they don't learn, and then there's a loop of behaviour which just comes back again. So uh, we often talk about this misplaced benevolence. How do you help the person giving the feedback to give them the courage, if you
0: like, to face into some of that internal dialogue about, I want to avoid this, but I have to go. Because it's an uncomfortable conversation, totally. right? But it's, it has to be a yeah. an honest one. Totally. Um, yeah. and, and PO's example that you gave, you know, he had broken our clear black and white, which we'd all agreed. And although you want to give him that soft landing you also can't protect him from the consequences of his actions otherwise that loop will Re- com- repeat. It will it will repeat
1: and that's back to the learning I think we talked about learning from failure because you know earlier on in the conversation we talked about learning from failure because if if you don't learn from failure that pattern just keeps playing out in different ways
0: and I can remember as a younger greener coach creating some of those patterns myself You want everyone to like you and that means you sometimes don't have those awkward conversations yet they are the interactions that will often be the ones that will make them and you better. I know now have known for a long time that to get those around you working at their best levels and happy and driven in what they do, you need to be consistent in how you treat people and you value their voice. But you can't avoid the difficult conversations or not call out behaviors and values that go against what we have all agreed because they will come back to bite you. Maybe not straight away, but they do come back and often at the very worst, most pressurized moments. The standard you walk past is the standard you become. This is probably one of those episodes that you will go back to and listen to again. So much here you can get stuck into and make your own. That fit your circumstances and those around you. Whether we realize it or not, we all use a form of performance psychology in our everyday lives to varying degrees. Now you can find Austin at Lane4. Their website is www.lane4performance.com. And he's also on LinkedIn if you search for him there. The show notes will provide loads of detail and relevant links to anything we signposted or referenced. You'll be able to find those at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast and please press that subscribe button on the usual platforms including apple podcasts spotify TuneIn, amazon music and google podcasts and please don't forget to rate and review to help us get noticed by like-minded listeners this has been the ben ryan podcast thanks for listening